It's the Carson McCullough Center's weekly Weave Me. This is the last of three episodes based on an interview with librettist Carrie Scott Wilkerson, composer Robert Chumbly, and baritone singer and opera director Ian Greenlaw. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. A subject I've been talking about on this podcast uh, with other interviewees is the remarkable affinity McCullers had for characters very much unlike herself, Dr. Copeland, for instance, or John Singer or Biff Brannon, and also for the character of Jake Blunt, the role you've taken, Ian. Can you talk about that? Who is Jake Blunt, uh, in your opinion, and what's your sense of McCullers' feeling for him? Well, Jake Blunt... um is a drifter. I don't think he's, uh, what I like about the way she's described him in some ways is she leaves certain things out to our imagination. There's a sort of ambiguous quality to his character that uh, that I really like because at the same time, it's very detailed about uh, his mannerisms, the way he delivers text, what he looks like. Uh, she talks about it early in the, in the book about there's something about him that's, um, I'm paraphrasing, but that there's something that he, uh, something stopped his growth and that it wasn't a necessarily a physical thing. And she alludes to the fact that perhaps it might be his alcoholism uh, or some mental sort of block blocks that he has. So um, aside from him, aside from that, he's a very political fi- figure. It's kind of hard to read this and not think about uh, current events uh, and that you can actually see politics from either angle uh, in a beautiful essay about what we're dealing with as a society right now. Uh, Well, that's part of it. Yeah. The other part is that um, it's amazing to me because um, Jake Blunt is quite different. You know, Carson McCullers is a a woman who grew up in a middle-class family in Columbus. Jake Blunt is a mill worker and a Marxist. And like you said, he's a drifter. What do you make of this affinity she apparently has for this character? I mean, th- this is one of the fascinating things, I think, to a lot of people is how she's able to create characters who are so different from herself, whose life uh, circumstances are so different from her own so convincingly. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Can I say something here? Because I actually think that there is something autobiographical in every one of these characters especially Mick, obviously, that's purely autobiographical. But there is a piece of McCullers in Blunt, the alcoholism. There's a piece of McCullers in Copeland, the illness, the physical problems. There's a piece of McCullers in Biff, the gender identity issues. I think there's a piece of McCullers herself in every one of these characters, which is why their interactions amongst themselves is so fascinating. It's almost like McCullers is talking to herself through these characters and using Mick, the full autobiographical character, as the fulcrum for all of it. There's actually a piece, piece of McCullers and Singer, um, living in his own world, living in his own head, um, which obviously McCullers, uh, that was a piece of her personality as well. But the fact that she's able to do that and still use a very distinct language uh, or um, narrative for each character uh, is just astounding to me. Uh, that's such a broad, but what you said, Robert, thank you. That was, that's so helpful because of course, now I'm looking at it from a, from that point of view. 
there is a little bit she does she's able to do that without making judgments about them at the same time which i find fascinating uh, she's very much an omniscient observer in some ways and it's third person a narrative but at the same time you really feel like you're inside those characters heads as she's describing them that's such such juicy material here i believe that because she was in fact herself widely misunderstood deeply uh, misunderstood by perhaps the people in her own community. That was a way of keeping her eyes and her ears and her heart and her aesthetic sensibilities and her metaphysical antennae open and up to the world around her. It is, of course, extraordinary that a young writer, I mean, a writer of, of that age could have, should have published as her first book, a novel with such knowing penetration into the lives of people whom she knew about and yet it seems that we it seems that she knew them i want to say that it also has something to do with this need to belong this is a, a theme for her you know she personally she was always searching for her own place uh, in the world, she felt the need to belong. Indeed, the we of me is an expression, is an expressive motif that has to do with that, that searching spirit. It is inevitable, I suppose, that her characters would in some way articulate, probably at every moment, her own longing. And uh, similarly, I think they are able to do and say things that she might have wanted to but could not find the moment for, but she found a language for it. Perhaps that's her final triumph. Something else I've been talking about with interviewees on the podcast, considering all of the crazy things going on in the world right now. Whatever do you, do you mean? <laughs> how do you see uh, McCullers uh, relating to that? I mean, how do, how do you, uh, this is a question for all of you. How do you see McCullers' work relating to what's going on in the world right now? You can look at the the timing and the setting of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. It was a, a period in American history of great distress. The Jim Crow era and the Depression era, um, these were not fun times, especially in the Deep South. And I think that her response to that in this novel would would have found importance in, in, in today's circumstances, too. I mean, it's in some ways, they're they're similar. People are anxious. People are nervous. There's racial disharmony. There's you know all the things that the setting of this novel deal with. We're looking at as we speak, which makes her work phenomenally timeless. It's 80 years later, still happening. From the obvious sort of commentary for me, that's the most uh, applicable or easy to see in terms of parallels with our society today is, is, is spoken by or screamed or, or mumbled by, by Jake in, in one of his many rants. But it's interesting to me that it's actually Biff and Harry that have the most to say about external events happening during that time. And that Jake is talking mostly about uh, these ideal, idealism, religion, and politics, pretty hot topics to say the least. Uh, there is in some ways, what I like about his Marxist views that he's talking about in these rants, when he talks about communism, he uses, he uses in some ways the same uh, language that we're hearing today uh, from people who are not 
even talking about socialism. So it's in some ways, if you think about it, um, this is pre, well, right after, I guess, Hitler annexed Poland or invaded Poland, this is something that would affect Harry in some ways being Jewish in a way that didn't affect Jake per se. So it's a, it's a subject, I think is, it's uh, really amazing how, even though it is set in the forties or early before then, that it, these are still things we're, we're dealing with. I believe Ms. Carson McCullers would say that our present moment needs looking into, needs more reflection than we seem to be capable of as a culture. I, I don't want this to, to sound abstract, but you know, I believe that McCullers sees, would see the question of social justice not as a political machination, but as a condition of humans living together and, and would, would demand that. Okay, Ian, how about you? Uh, what piece have you chosen and why? Well, uh, my turn. It looks like, for me, Jake has so many different rants during the during this course of the novel. Uh, when he first meets Singer in the, in the cafe, there's a little small one, but in part two, uh, chapter four, it's probably my favorite part. So he's having a, a, a ale with his friend Singer and uh, ranting, basically, uh, which is very, very declamatory, which is one of the reasons I like this character, because he's very operatic and just in his very nature. And how many of us are there in this country? Maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000, maybe a lot more. I've been to a lot of places, but I never met a f but a few of us. But say a man does know, he sees the world as it is, and he looks back thousands of years to see how it all come about. He watches the slow agglutination of capital and power, and he sees its pinnacle today. He sees America as a crazy house. He sees how men have to rob their brothers in order to live. He sees children starving and women working 60 hours a week to get to eat. He sees a whole damn army of unemployed and billions of dollars and thousands of miles of land wasted. He sees war coming. He sees how when people suffer just so much, they get mean and ugly and something dies in them. But the main thing he sees is that the whole system of the world is built on a lie. And although it's as plain as the shining sun, the don't knows have lived with that lie so long, they just can't see it. The red cord vein, the red corded vein in Jake's forehead swelled angrily. He grasped the scuttle on the hearth and rattled an avalanche of coal on the fire. His foot had gone to sleep and he stamped it so hard that the floor shook. I've been all over the place. I walk around, I talk, I try to explain to them. What, about, what good does it do? Lord God! He gazed into the fire, and a flush from the ale and, heart and heat deepened the color of his face. The sleepy tingling in his foot spread up his leg. He drowsed and saw the colors of the fire, the tints of green and blue and burning yellow. You're the only one he said dreamily, the only one. Singer wrinkled his forehead and considered. He reached for his silver pencil and wrote on his pad of paper that he didn't know. But there's this, you see, we just can't settle down after knowing, but we got to act. And some of us go nuts. There's too much to, to do and you know, don't know where to start. It makes you crazy, even me. I've done th things that when I look back at them, they don't seem rational. Once I started an organization myself, 
I picked out 20 lintheads and talked to them until I thought they knew. Our motto was one word, action, huh? We meant to start riots, stir up all the big trouble we could. Our ultimate goal was freedom, but a real freedom, a great freedom made possible only by the sense of justice of the human soul. Our motto, action, signified the raising of capitalism. In the Constitution, drawn up by myself, certain statutes dealt with the swapping of our motto from action to freedom as soon as our work was through. Jake sharpened the end of a match and picked a troublesome cavity in a tooth. After a moment, he continued. Then, when the Constitution was all written down and the first followers well organized, then I went out on a hitchhiking tour to organize component units of the society. Within three months I came back, and what do you reckon I found? What was the first heroic action? Had their righteous fury overcome planned action so that they had gone ahead without me? Was it destruction? Murder? Revolution? Jake leaned forward in his chair. After a pause, he said somberly, My friend, they had stole the $57.30 from the treasury to buy uniform caps and free Saturday suppers. I caught them sitting around the conference table, rolling the bones, their caps on their heads, and a ham and a gallon of gin in easy reach. <laughs> a timid smile from Singer followed Jake's outburst of laughter. After a while, the smile on Singer's face grew strained and faded. Jake still laughed. The vein in his forehead swelled. His face was dusky red. He laughed too long. Singer looked up at the clock and indicated the time, half past twelve. He took his watch, his silver pencil and pad, his cigarettes and matches from the mantel, and distributed them among his pockets. It was dinner time. But Jake still laughed. There was something maniacal in the sound of his laughter. He walked about the room, jingling ch the change in his pockets. His long, powerful arms swung tense and awkward. He began to name over parts of his coming meal. When he spoke of food, his face was fierce with gusto. With each word, he raised his upper lip like a ravenous animal. But at night, the tension came in him again. Singer had put away his chessmen, and they sat facing each other. Nervousness made Jake's lips twitch raggedly, and he drank to soothe himself. A backwash of restlessness and desire overcame him. He drank again to Singer. The words swelled within him and gushed from his mouth. He walked from the window to the bed and back again, again and again. And at last the deluge of swollen words took shape and he delivered them to the mute with drunken emphasis. The things they have done to us, the truths they have turned into lies, the ideals they have fouled and made vile. Take Jesus, he was one of us, he knew. When he said that it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, he damn well meant just what he said. But look at what the church has done to Jesus during the last 2,000 years. What have they made of him? How they have turned every word he spoke for their own vile ends. Jesus would be framed and in jail if he was living today. Jesus would be one who really knows. Me and Jesus would sit across the table and I would look at him, and he would look at me, and we would both know that the other knew. 
me and Jesus, and Karl Marx could all sit at a table and... And look what has happened to our freedom. The men who fought the American Revolution were no more like these D.A.R. dames than I'm a pot-bellied, perfumed Pekingese dog. They meant what they said about freedom. They fought a real revolution. They fought so that this could be a country where every man would be free and equal, huh? And that meant every man was equal in the sight of nature, with an equal chance. They didn't mean that 20% of the people were free to rob the other 80% of the means to live. This didn't mean for one rich man to sweat the piss out of 10,000 poor men so that he can get richer. This didn't mean that tyrants were free to get this country in such a fix that millions of people are ready to do anything, cheat, lie, or whack off their right arm just to work for three squares and a flop. They have made the word freedom a blasphemy. You hear me? They have made the word freedom stink like a skunk to all who know. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? We were talking earlier about um, how uh, McCullough's work relates to what's going on today. And he's got that, uh, his percentages 20% and 80%. The only thing that would change probably is the, is the percentages they're worse. Now it's the 2% and the 98%, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, no, that's, that's great stuff. And I have always said that, uh, you know, a lot of the, of the issues that McCullough deals with in the novel, I think get a lot more ink spilled by critics, for instance, on the issue of racism, on uh, gender fluidity and things like that than on the plight of the working class. But to me, that is a major part of the novel and something that is just as important, maybe, in the novel as all of those other things. Well, yeah, look at Mick's father. You know, I mean, the, uh, Mick's whole family life is that. I mean, they have to rent the room to sing or just to buy food. I mean, it's, you know, the working class issues are uh, Portia. All the way, you know, there's another character, another right. working class. You know, this is something that uh, I'm sure uh, Scott is aware of. I don't know, uh, uh, Robert and Ian, if you are aware of this, but Columbus, Georgia is apparently the first city in America to have a vocational high school. Jordan High School was the first vocational high school mm -hmm. in America. And it's interesting that she has Mick and Harry be uh, students at that high school. Uh, you know, it's for the working class kids. It was for the mill kids is, is, is the reason that the high school was developed. Interesting because Carson didn't go to Jordan. She went to Columbus High. That's something that, you know, I hadn't thought about a lot until you were reading that passage, Robert. And I realized, oh yeah, that's interesting. She hasn't gone to Jordan High School. And again, it's another way in which the novel is dealing directly with the issues of the working class, I think. Scott, one of the things our listeners might be interested to hear about uh, and to know is that you lived for a time in the garage apartment of the house next door to the Smith McCullers house, Carson McCullers' childhood home. And during that time, you were actually working on the libretto for this opera based on one of McCullers' most famous works, The Heart is Lonely Hunter, which is actually set in that very neighborhood, or at least that's the neighborhood we imagine that Carson had in mind. So what was that like? It was a, a great privilege and a, a haunted fantasy. I walked quite a lot on those sidewalks in the daytime and at night, uh, imagining what it might have been like. I mean, at different levels of, of 
presence to, to that idea. For instance, I wasn't always uh, thinking that I was retracing Carson's steps, but I was never far from uh, my thoughts that uh, she could have walked. She indeed she did walk exactly those pathways, and she saw uh, the moon through uh, that magnolia and the presence of of that home and what domesticity could have meant will have meant for all of us was certainly a, a part of the way I began the project. And then later, I had to find a way to make it my own and make it right for this project. But to be sure, being so near Carson's origins, if I can, placed another level of, I'll call it responsibility, to do right by Carson in this opera and to make peace with, with that place, which I do believe is benignly haunted. Is there anything else uh, anybody wants to add uh, that we may not have talked about with respect to the life, work, and lasting influence of Carson McCullers? The only thing I would add is that the expectations of an operatic presentation of the characters and the storyline needs to be carefully restrained because the book is very episodic. It is quite lengthy. Of course, in an opera, it takes, you know, 20 times longer to say anything than it does in real life. So we cannot include every character because there are way too many characters. We cannot include every scene. So Scott has had to streamline this thing in a way that I think some fans of McCullers and the novel might find that we've omitted something important. So I just caution people to realize the constrictions of an operatic presentation of this masterpiece. I think I can speak for all McCullers fans out there that uh, we avidly await uh, the production of the opera, really looking forward to it. And uh, it's gonna be another uh, huge event in the McCullers world. So uh, Godspeed to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks okay. so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullers Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Ian Greenlaw's reading from The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is in the Library of America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers. The music you heard during the reading was Tableau de Provence by Paul Maurice, performed live in Legacy Hall on October 16, 2019.